I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Our text today is going to be verses 1 through 11 in a message entitled, Serving God, the Savior of All People. Today we are returning to our series, Distinctives of a Gospel-Shaped Church. You might wonder, what is a gospel-shaped church? It's basically a Jesus-shaped church. And 1 Timothy is the first of three books in the Bible that are referred to as the pastoral epistles because they contain instructions to church leaders about church life and ministry, with the other two being 2 Timothy and Titus. 1 Timothy is also the first of four epistles written to individuals rather than to local churches. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was in the city of Ephesus. Paul planted the church at Ephesus and spent a lot of time there until he was eventually forced out of the city. And he eventually appointed Timothy to pastor the church there. 1 Timothy offers some very practical pastoral advice from an aging apostle, Paul, to the younger pastor, Timothy. And it's from the perspective of a friend and a father in the faith who is writing to a younger man in the faith to combat false teachers and false teaching. The distinctives in 1 Timothy are highly practical. Each church has its own personality, strengths, and weaknesses, but there are also many things that we have in common as we're guided by the Word and the Spirit. Some important themes arise from 1 Timothy. The gospel produces holiness so that our belief drives our behavior. The gospel shapes the character of church leaders and those who are responsible to guide the church. The gospel calls for evangelism. If it is good news, then we ought to want to share it with other people. The gospel and how it is received guides our corporate worship time, and it also influences how we relate to one another in the church. And because the gospel is so valuable, we should contend for it in its purity and its preservation. Now, our big idea for today from the verses that we're going to consider in just a moment is that God shines the light of truth into the darkness of the world through faithful servants. God shines the light of truth into the darkness of the world through faithful servants. The church is the repository and the guardian of the truth. And we as servants in the church must be aware of the tactics of the spiritual enemy and the attacks that will come on the church. And we need to hold to some core convictions and be unwavering in our boldness about it. Now, this particular chapter marks a major transition in the letter and in the flow of the letter. Chapters 1 through 3 emphasized personal issues related to church worship. And in chapter 4, the primary emphasis is on the dangers that are posed by false teachers. The first five verses focus on what the Spirit says will happen in the later or latter times, in the end times. And then verse 6 and following focus on combating the false teachers and their teaching. So we'll begin reading now in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, and we'll begin with the first five verses. And here's what the Word of God says. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later, your translation may say latter times, some will depart from the faith, 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. In these few moments that we have together, let's look at three core convictions in these verses. The first core conviction is that you should know that everything given by God is good. Now, the Spirit explicitly says that in later or latter times, some will depart from the faith. The Spirit who is referenced here is the Holy Spirit. He's associated with prophecy and speaking under divine inspiration. At certain points in the Scripture, the word later or latter is used simply to refer to a later time than the specific one that they were writing in. Then, later or latter can refer to the time toward the end of all things. I believe Paul referenced the time starting with when he wrote this and then pointing out that the situation is going to go downhill and get worse as the return of Jesus approaches. You'll remember that Jesus repeatedly taught us to be on guard against false teachers and false teaching. He spoke of false messiahs and false prophets who will rise up and lead people astray. Jesus said, even the elect, if possible. Peter warned of scoffers who will come, living according to their own desires and doubting that the end is coming, scoffing at those who believe that it is. He spoke of what sort of people God's children should be in holy conduct and godliness as we wait for and earnestly desire the coming day of God. Paul warned of savage wolves that would come into the church, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up from within and teach deviant doctrines to lead the church astray. So if you want a concise definition of the last days, they began with the first advent or the first coming of Christ, and they will conclude with the second coming or the second advent of Christ. And we would say that we are certainly living in the last days. Where we are in that, only God knows. But we know for certain that we are closer to the end than we have ever been before. And we live with a sense of awareness and urgency because of that. But even in light of this truth, there are some people who will abandon the faith. And they will follow after the false teachings of deceiving spirits or demons as we might identify them. Paul indicated back in 1 Timothy 1 that some will reject the faith and they'll reject a good conscience and they'll actually make a shipwreck of the faith. And the indication is that the apostasy that we are looking for and the false teaching and the attacks that we are to be on guard against will come from within the church. So the instruction is do not be deceived by evil. This false teaching is threefold. First of all, it will come through hypocritical agents. These are people who propagate falsehood instead of truth, and they are under the guise of advancing the truth. Because their consciences are seared, they can't tell the difference between what is false and what is true. 
Second is the prohibition of marriage in this particular instance, even though marriage had been given as a blessing from God and as something that was good from God. Third was their insistence on certain food restrictions, even though all food has been provided by God. So here was the problem. The false teachers were teaching that these things were valuable as a means of salvation, that somehow if they were to follow these instructions, that it would contribute to their salvation or their standing with God. Now, I think this is a form of asceticism. You say, what's asceticism? Uh, Well, in a religious context, it refers to a voluntary or a sustained practice of self-denial in which immediate gratifications are renounced in order to reach some type of higher spiritual state, or at least that's the idea. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with self-denial in and of itself, uh, but this teaching was instigated by the devil. The Jews were not especially prone to asceticism, but the Gentiles were. You see, the Greek culture uh, had the seeds of Gnostic dualism, meaning that they viewed the human body and its functions as evil, and they taught that the godly were to live above the physical. So Paul is writing to a specific issue of false teaching that was being propagated, but he's addressing a broader issue of what we ought to be aware of in the church. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, as the revelation from the Spirit in Scripture shows, apostasy is predictable and inevitable. There will always be those who make a temporary response to the gospel but have no genuine faith in God. We should not be surprised when they leave us and should remember the words of John in 1 John 2 and verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. So those who depart from the faith, according to that passage of Scripture, were never truly in the faith. They never experienced genuine conversion. And specifically, these false teachings, which came from deceiving spirits or demons, were powerful lies. So think about it this way. Whatever the specific issue is, People who promote such teachings are abandoning the essential teachings of Christianity. How could they do such a thing? Their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. Their lives bear the marks of hypocrisy. And the false teachers bear these marks spiritually. Whether it's asceticism and you're limiting certain things and telling people that they need to do this in order to be spiritual, or whether it's antinomianism and you're promoting uh, freely doing what you want to do, even if it's contrary to Scripture, the ultimate result is the same. You say, well, how would this apply to us today in a modern context? What might be some forms of apostasy that we would see? or teachings that are being promoted that are not from God's Word. Well, some churches teach a diminished view of the Bible, that the Bible cannot be trusted. It's an issue that was in the garden at the fall. Did God really say? That has been the tactic of Satan from the beginning. And when the authority of Scripture is thrown out the window and people think that they are wiser than God and they can pick and choose what they think is true in the Bible, then anything goes. So how do we discern false teaching? What is the number one way that we can discern false teaching? 
The answer is to know the word of God. Because if it is contrary to the word of God, then it qualifies as false teaching. Then some churches teach a word of faith or a prosperity-based gospel, for example. This is another gospel which is no gospel at all. It is a false gospel. Uh, Some churches teach universalism as it relates to the gospel. The exclusivity of repentance and faith in Jesus, according to them, is not necessary, only that you have some kind of faith in something. And if you are sincere in whatever it is that you want to follow after, then you're going to be okay. And that is a universalist way of thinking. A massive issue in the age that we live in is the issue of human sexuality. And there are some churches that are teaching that homosexuality, for example, is compatible with Christian teaching. And one of the greatest lies that, that is being taught in our day is the homosexual and the transgender propaganda. This is not from God. It is contrary to the Bible. Some churches get caught up in culturally based social agendas. They get caught up in culturally based social agendas that are conservative. They get caught up in culturally based social agendas that are liberal. They get caught up in culturally based social agendas that are progressive. And if they are not biblically driven, then they are untrue teachings that take our focus off of God and his word. Now, what's the result of all of this? All of these result in empty religion, and they are rooted in some form of liberal theology. And the problem in the church, watch this now, is not so much censorship from the outside. Oh, censorship from the outside is a potential enemy, but the main problem in the church is compromise from the inside. Our main concern is not what's going on on the outside. Our main concern is what's going on on the inside. So the danger for us are not pagans ultimately, but false teachers who spiritually sabotage the church. And we are instructed to avoid these things. And I want you to listen to me very carefully. There is no middle ground. If someone is teaching something as true that is contrary to the Bible, they are a liar. There's no middle ground if we believe that the Bible is authoritative and a trustworthy word from God. Fred Greco put it this way. He said, false teaching is a real threat to the church. False teaching is not a threat only in certain circumstances or only in churches with certain structures or only in certain places and cultures in the world. We must recognize it as a threat because the Bible continually warns us that it is a threat. The Bible's testimony about false teaching should make it clear that we are not invulnerable to this threat. So here's the admonition. Receive good from God with thanksgiving and consecrate all that is good from God and receive what he's given to us as a blessing in what we eat or don't eat or what action we follow after is not ultimately what makes us righteous, what makes us righteous is the blood of Jesus. When we are declared righteous by faith in him and God sees us through the righteousness of his son rather than in anything that we could ever possibly do. Know that everything given by God is good. The second core conviction 
is to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now let's pick back up in 1 Timothy 4 and read verses 6 through 8. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So the instruction from Paul to Timothy and the instruction to us in the church is to point these things out to the brothers and sisters. And if we faithfully point these things out to the brothers and sisters, we will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant here is also translated as minister. It's literally the same word that is used for deacon, and it means a servant. That's what it means. And he's showing us that the main job of the pastors in the church is the instruction of the church. Instruction is considered and understood to be not only Sunday teaching, but the overall ministry and approach. We look to Jesus for this. He instructed his disciples with his life, with his presence, with his practice, and all of those things, they matched up. They were consistent together. So the pastor of the church is a conduit of truth. Paul put it this way to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. The goal of instruction is to nourish the people of God. The goal of instruction is to spiritually feed, spiritually guide, and spiritually protect the people of God. The content of that instruction is not human opinion. It's not social agendas. It's not the ideas of man. The goal of that instruction is the word of God. And Jesus, you'll remember, gave Peter a threefold command Feed my sheep in John 21. Each time Jesus was speaking in response to Peter's declaration of love for Jesus. And the food that the shepherds are to feed the flock with is the word of God. It's the pure milk of the word followed by the meat of the word and solid food to the spiritually mature. And Paul told Timothy not to have anything to do with pointless and silly myths. He says, reject profane and old wives' fables. Uh, Wisdom is is needed to discern between what's significant and what is not. And we get caught up in all these little side agendas and all these little side ideas and these side topics that aren't the main event. And in the church, there have to be people who are guiding and praying for and leading the church who are continually saying, come back to the main thing. Stick with the main thing. Keep your eyes on the word of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the Savior. Honor God with your life. And this is where our focus is to be. Now, he says specifically, train yourself or exercise yourself in godliness. To train yourself, that idea comes from athletics. And it's specifically training for a sporting event that might be coming up. 
Physical training was a commonly used illustration among the Greco-Roman moralists and philosophers as well. So Paul is using something that they would use for a particular point, and he's turning it on its head, and he's making a more important point. And the form of the verb indicates a continuity of action in that it is not a one-time event. What is in view here is a persistent and strenuous training. It is something that is morally and intellectually and spiritually intense. It is ongoing. It is continuing on with the entirety of your life. And this godliness that he speaks of here indicates a right reverence, worship, or fear. So from a biblical perspective, it means respect for the Lord and a desire to be faithful in the things of God. Now, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 and verse 3 that his divine power has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So Paul says, listen, you got to strive for this and you got to train yourself in godliness. You, you need to discipline yourself in the things of God. And Peter says, friends, God's given you everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness. He's provided for you by his grace what you need for this pursuit. And you are to train yourself continually to live a life that shows reverence to God and reverence to his word. Now, clearly, Paul is not opposed to physical training or the health benefits of it. Uh, There is, I think, an intentional contrast between the asceticism that was being promoted by the false teachers and genuine faith. Um, Asceticism, on the one hand, represents an effort to practice self-control and somehow reap uh, spiritual eternal benefits from it. Godliness includes the idea of self-control spiritually, but Paul is making a point. He's drawing the point out that physical training is limited because we will still get old, we will still get sick, we will all still eventually die. And we can be good stewards with physical training. We should be good stewards with the life God has entrusted to us. We're not given a pass on that. It's important in our daily lives. But then what he's mainly saying is spiritual training has eternal implications. So think about it this way. Sin won't help you in the life to come. A particular earthly pedigree is not going to help you in the life to come. Worldly success is not going to help you in the life to come. Personal beauty is not going to deliver you in the life to come. Train yourself, discipline yourself in godliness because you want to be more like the Savior who lived and died and now lives again for you. There's an illustration from the ministry of Billy Graham. Uh, He shared about his medical missionary father-in-law, Nelson Bell, uh, who at one time ran a 400-bed hospital in China. And he said that his father-in-law would rise every morning at 4.30 and spend two to three hours in Bible reading. And he said that he wouldn't do any correspondence or any other type of work during that time. He would just read the scriptures and pray. And as a result of that discipline that he applied towards spiritual godliness, He was a walking Bible encyclopedia, and people knew that he was a man who had been with God. And I wonder about our own lives. Are we training ourselves in godliness? 
as we think about the transforming power of life with God and what it means to pray and spend time in his word and lift up prayers of adoration and, and have a faithful walk with God daily, are we training ourselves in godliness and walking with him? That is a necessity if you want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And then the third core conviction is to set your hope on the living God. Look now again at verses 9 and 10. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Verse 10, for this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We might uh, state it again this way. Faithful is the saying. I think this points specifically to verse 8 and the value of spiritual exercise in godliness. Uh, You can count on it. You can believe what he says in verse 8. But then the message is furthered when he says, to this end we will toil and strive. The language of toiling and striving is used in the New Testament to speak of manual labor. And maybe if you do a lot of manual labor, you can easily make application of this, that if you're working hard with your hands and and you're using your body physically to be able to accomplish certain things in your vocation, then it's that same type of hard work. It's that same type of striving uh, after the things of God. And Paul does not minimize the fact that progressing in godliness is not easy for any Christian. Why is it not easy? Because we're in a spiritual battle. We're in the midst of darkness. We have uh, competing ideas that are continuously coming into our minds and in our hearts. And if we're not laboring in these things, then we're not going to understand the significance of it. He's pointing to personal conduct. He's talking about uh, the idea of faithfulness, even in varying circumstances. He's talking about facing difficulties and disappointments that are the norm in a sin fallen world. But you know what he's saying ultimately? Hey, it's worth it. It's worth it. You can spend your time and you can spend your energy on the things of of this world. You can labor after things that are going to be gone the moment that you are gone from this world. And there is no greater privilege than to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, to see other people follow Jesus, to see people discipled, to see people hope in God. And the reason that we labor and the reason that we endure hardship and the reason that we strive and suffer reproach is because we have put our hope in the living God. Because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, what are we to make of this turn in phrases here between the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe? I think the Savior of all people here is not primarily spoken in an eternal sense in the first usage, but rather in a temporal sense. And here's what I mean by that. God withholds judgment and people have the opportunity to repent. Christ died for our sins, but not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And this God who has given his son for all who will believe is giving common grace to people in their lives, good things that they experience as part of being in creation, the breath that they're breathing, and everything else that is good. 
But in the second part of the reference, he says, especially of those who believe. So now we shift to the eternal, to all who call on Jesus as Savior and Lord, to all who receive the gift of everlasting life, to all who are saved, to all who are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. He is especially the Savior of those who believe. 1 Peter 1 and verse 13 says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about hope. Hope is thought of by many people in a contemporary sense as being distinguished from certainty. Uh, We might say, I hope it's not going to rain, but we have no idea if it's really going to rain or not. I hope something good is going to happen. We really don't have any idea if something good is going to happen or not. There's a difference, biblically speaking. The difference is that hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It is when God has promised something is going to happen, and you put your trust in that promise. You are depending on the promise maker, and you are counting on the promise keeper. You are certain that God is going to do what he said. So the foundation of hope is faith in the living God. Hope has all the confidence that comes with knowing for certain, without question, that what we've been promised by God in his word is true, so that faith is confident assurance that is founded on our salvation in Jesus Christ. You can take biblical hope to the bank. Absolutely certain. No doubt that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. Now, we know, practically speaking, that if our future is not secure, if we've not trusted in Jesus by faith for our salvation, we will have a lot of anxiety that results in fear. Hope is not passive. It is active. Hope is not automatic, it is invited. Hope is not permanent in our minds, it has to be practiced. Biblical hope is a reality and not a feeling. So life is about finding hope in the living God and serving others in his power. Matthew Henry said that the salvation that God has in store for those who believe is sufficient to recompense for all their services and sufferings. I think what he's saying uh, basically is everything that we go through in this life, all the struggles that we endure, all the hardships that we face, all of the obstacles that we overcome, they're going to pale in comparison when we see our Savior face to face. They're going to pale in comparison when we understand the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus in heaven. They're going to pale in comparison to what it's going to be like to be in the very presence of God for all of eternity with all of our troubles behind us, with sin totally vanquished and no more, not struggling with it at all in this life. And that is a hope beyond hope. And that's what we're granted when our faith is in Jesus. Now notice finally what he says in verse 11. He says, command and teach these things. I think faithful servants are not going to waste time. They're going to command and teach these things. And friends, there there is an urgency like never before in the church. 
Because what we're experiencing right now, even in churches that at their most basic level would say that they're following after the teachings of the Bible, is we're experiencing a sifting in many regards. We're seeing a, a, a gradual falling away. We're, we're seeing people who are more and more drifting toward things that are not consistent with the Bible. And that says that there has to be an urgency about the church. Business as usual is not going to get it. We can't just go through the motions. And faithful servants are not going to waste time. They're going to command and teach these things. And they're going to do it with humility and with diligence. And they're going to do it with confidence. And they're going to stay with it. And I think this applies to both the primary leaders of the church and the pastoral leadership, the servants in that regard, but it applies to the faithful people that comprise the body of Christ. We need people who are consistent, who are faithful, who see the urgency of it all and don't capitulate to the culture or to false teachings that could arise in the church. Now, let me, let me give you a few thoughts and I'm going to conclude. The word of God is the true and final authority because it is from God. If you drift from that, you're done. It really doesn't matter what else you've got to say. If you drift from the word of God as truth and as the final authority that is from God, that is a major, major spiritual issue. In our daily lives, we must spend time in the word of God in prayer if we believe this to be true so that we would apply ourselves to growth in godliness. And what it says to us is that when we gather together, the word of God has to be central. When we come together in worship, it has to be the main focus. Jesus, the word, the living word, he has to be the main focus. So it's my privilege and my responsibility week in and week out to say to you, this is what God has said in his word. And if you want to have hope, look to Jesus. If you're in the midst of darkness right now, look to Jesus. If you're facing discouragement, look to Jesus. If you don't know which way to go, look to Jesus. That is continually the point. Look to Jesus. And if you look to him, he'll never lead you astray. He'll never lead you down a path that will be a path away from God. You might have heard the name Ignatius. And I want to share this with you just briefly and then we're going to pray. Ignatius was an early church father and he was also a friend and contemporary of John. He wrote his own letter to Ephesus, which is an extra biblical letter, uh, but he served at one time as the bishop in Antioch, Syria, until the time that he was led away in chains to Rome. He was tortured, his trial was a mockery, and in 107 he was led to the Colosseum where his body was thrown into the Colosseum and he was mauled to death by wild beasts. But here's what he wrote in part in his letter to Ephesus. The last days are here. Let our lot be genuine life in Jesus Christ. Do not let anything catch your eye beside him. The last days are here. Let our lot be genuine life in Jesus Christ. Do not let anything catch your eye beside him. Father, we thank you so much today that we can call you our Father through faith in your Son. That God, you so loved the world that you sent your only 
begotten son. You're one of a kind son to this world. To live, to die, and to now live again. To offer himself up as the substitution for us. He died in our place. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you, Father, that you are the self-revealing God, that what we know about you, we know because you have shown it to us. You have revealed yourself to us through the general revelation of the word uh, and creation and the special revelation of your son, Jesus. And we thank you that your word is true from start to finish. We thank you that your son can be looked to for salvation and for eternal life. And I pray, God, in these moments that as we think about uh, the struggle that we face spiritually in this world, that we would bring ourselves back to these core convictions, that we would anchor our hope in the things that are true. God, protect us from the lies that might come, even from within the church. Protect us from the compromise that would rise up from people who call themselves religious people, who call themselves religious leaders and are yet so far from you and what is true and right. And I pray, oh God, that we would stand firm and that we would pursue godliness in all that we do. Father, I know today that there are some who have not yet called on Jesus for salvation. They don't know him as Savior and Lord. And I pray whether they're here in the room with us or listening online or maybe listening to this message later on, I pray that they would see the hope that is available in Jesus the forgiveness that is available in Jesus, the eternal life that he stands ready to give and that they would be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Bless this church, Father. Protect us, find us faithful, encourage us, and help us to stay focused on the main thing and glorifying you and your great name. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.